resolution, dude. I love it. All right, 2018, like, who's made their New Year's resolutions already? Anybody? Who hates New Year's resolutions? Go ahead, throw Oh, wow, man, we got some bummers in the crowd today. Oh, man, I feel like, all right, we got to talk. Next week, we're going to talk about positivity and optimism uh, because there's a whole lot of that that's lacking here today, okay? <laughs> we got a lot of realists in the room. I, I'm not one of those, okay? Man, I love New Year's. I love the fresh New Year. Like, I love the hope that it brings because it's like, man, something's going to be different about this year than it was last year. And most of us in this room don't think so, okay? Uh, but, like, there's, there's something about the New Year for me that just brings this kind of fresh hope. And for me, what it, what it is is like, man, this year's just going to be different. I want this to be different than it was last year, whether it's like there were some, some tough things of last year that I want to be totally different this year, or there were some really good things from last year, but I want to take it to the next level. Uh, so I made some New Year's resolutions, and uh, uh, you want to hear them? All right, here we go. Okay. Some of you, you're just going to hate this. You're going to hate this, okay? Uh, I want to read at least 50 books this year. I'd love to begin blogging monthly. I mean, we got some book haters in this room. Wow, man, we got to talk, guys. This is ugly. Not a good way to start the year. I'd love to write a book. I've had like an idea for a book in my head for years now, and I'd love to write one. Uh, I want to read through the entire Bible systematically throughout the whole year. Uh, I'd love to go on four prayer retreats to kind of discern from God what direction he wants to take our church in, like actually get away and escape for like a whole day, 24 hours or whatever. Uh, I'd love to put on 10 pounds of muscle because I've become a girly man. You guys know that. Like, like the past year, I've been talking about massages and all that. Like something weird has happened to me and I need to put on some man weight, okay? Uh, I'd love to play a whole game of ultimate or soccer without stopping because I get winded fast and just out of shape, okay? Some of you, you're like, I get that. Uh, I'd love to play games with friends weekly. Like, I want that to be a part of my, my weekly routine. And then I'd love to ho- knock out half of my still undergrad debt. Um, those are some of my New Year's resolutions. And for some, like very few in this room, you're like, man, go get them. That's awesome. For the rest of you, you're like, yeah, right. Like, you never accomplished that this year. Uh, now, I'm, I'm listening to this and I'm like, Probably not going to accomplish it. But, 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 here, all right, all right. It's a whole lot of mess. New Year's resolutions, we're all over the board in this room on that one. But this message is not about New Year's resolutions. It's not about mine. It's not about yours. It's a lot deeper than that. Now, studies actually show that uh, only 8% of the people who make resolutions actually follow through with them. Only 8%. Now, what that says to me is that the resolutions that we make just aren't going deep enough. I mean, for the, for the people who actually make resolutions, we're not setting them deep enough. In, in fact, my guess is that most of us, what we do is we kind of set our resolutions up here and they haven't hit us at a core level deep enough where it actually starts sticking and becoming a part of our life. Now, here's what I want us to warn ourselves about. For those of you who like making goals, who actually like making goals, and, and we just, we, we miss 100% of the goals we don't make, okay? That's just true. Uh, for those of you who actually like them, what I want to do is I want to take us to a deeper place where we're understanding what the real issues in our life are. Because only when we understand what the deepest issues of our life are can we actually provide some solutions that are going to make a real difference. And now, here's what I believe about every one of us. I believe that God has made every one of us in this room to be actual, tangible, powerful difference makers in this world and in greater Nashua and beyond. I really believe that. But in order to make the biggest difference that we possibly can in 2018 and beyond, We have to understand what the biggest issues of life 
are. So here's what we're going to do. The next five weeks, I'm going to take us on a journey exploring the life of a man named Nehemiah. You got to like, Nehemiah, what? Yeah, Nehemiah. He's a a dude from the Old Testament. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to it. It's a small book. If you're not familiar with the Bible, uh, we we can help you with that. In fact, we have Bibles in the back if you don't have one with you. um, You can, like no shame, you can throw your hand up and we'll we'll find someone who can get a Bible in the back and just give it to you. So if you're missing a Bible, go ahead and throw your, your hand up. It's totally fine. In fact, if you don't have one, that's a gift from us to you that you can just take with you when you go home. Um, but uh, in Nehemiah, it's a little book. It's before a big book called Psalms and right before that, Job. It's right after a book called Ezra. Um, so it's, it's just a little book in the Old Testament. And we're going to explore the life of this guy who is a very normal guy, ordinary, not impressive dude. But he became an incredible difference maker in his world and much bigger than that because we're still reading about him today. Um, but here's where we have to start with him. It starts with understanding a massive problem about his world. Here's the context and then we're going to read Context. About 140 years prior to what I'm about to share with you, this story of Nehemiah, 140 years earlier, the nation of Israel had been in the land of Israel, the people, the Jewish people, they were in Israel, and then the Babylonians did something crazy. They conquered the known world, and what they did is they totally sacked and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And what they did in that moment when they conquered Jerusalem, they conquered Israel, is they deported the best and the brightest of the Jews back to Babylon so that they could re-enculturate these Jewish people, the best and the brightest of them, and make them great Babylonians. It was a brilliant strategy. The, the Assyrians, when they conquered the known world, they just scattered all sorts of people that they conquered so that no one would have, you know, a unified language and culture and all that. The Babylonians didn't do that. They, left, they just left the worst of the worst, and they took the best of the best and, and made Babylon awesome. So this is where we find Nehemiah 140 years after that. Babylonians are gone, the Persians take over, and King Artaxerxes is on the throne. 140 years later, here's Nehemiah. He's a cupbearer. If you guys don't know what a cupbearer is, uh, it's someone who tests the food and the drink for the king to make sure the king doesn't die. Okay? (laughs) Not a fun job, okay? Nobody wants that job, but he's an incredibly ordinary guy. But he hears something radical in his life that totally changes the course of his life and the course of many other people's lives, too. You ready to explore? Let's pray, and we'll dive into it together. God, again, thank you for this morning. We're grateful to take a moment during an average week, the beginning of the year, to get outside of ourselves, outside of our minds, outside of our own life, and to explore who you are. God, my, my prayer is that as we journey with you today, that you would just open our eyes, open our hearts to see what you have to say. And I, I pray even more than that, God, that we just see you for who you are. Because I think and just believe deeply that when we understand you, when we know who you are, your character, your nature, and what you're up to in this world, God, I just think that everything in life starts having more clarity. So God, give us that kind of clarity today. And bless this time in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, chapter one. We're going to read the whole thing, and then we're going to talk about it. Okay, Nehemiah, chapter one. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. This is his own testimony. Like he's, he's writing this as he's experiencing it, his, his own chronicles. It's kind of cool. First person. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Han and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, the exile meaning those who had been deported, you know, from Jerusalem out to Babylon, those who'd survived the exile, and also about the city of Jerusalem. 
They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and they're in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. I said, Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, committed against you. We've acted very wickedly toward you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Now remember, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me, and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants, your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. And give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man, the king. I was cupbearer to the king. Now, this is the setting. Again, he's cupbearer. Nehemiah is an ordinary guy. I mean, nobody wants the kind of job that he has. And yet, he hears some news in this moment that just radically changes his life. What's this news? Well, some of the people who had been left in Jerusalem and some of the people who kind of escaped some of that exile of the Babylonians that went back to Jerusalem, they come back and report something that's pretty awful. They say the people that are left now in Jerusalem are in great trouble. They're disgraced. Now, for those of you like, I mean, for, for, for us, like, as we think about this, we're thinking about like a, a city that had been destroyed 140 years ago. I mean, why the urgency right now? Why, why is there urgency right now to, I mean, to, to, to do something about this city that had been lying in ruins for 140 years? Well, what we don't know is the book right before Nehemiah actually articulates this. There were some people who were going back into Jerusalem and starting to rebuild some things. And what they were doing primarily is rebuilding the temple around which the whole Jewish nation revolved because it was where they were to get right with God and, and, and start living as the people that God had them, uh, had them to be. So they rebuilt this temple. It wasn't quite as big as, and fancy as, as they wanted it to be in days prior, but they rebuilt the temple under the, a, a name of a guy named Ezra and Zerubbabel. You know, if, if you're looking for a name of you know, your future kid, Zerubbabel is a great one, okay? I don't know many who've taken it, so go ahead and you can take that. It's good. Uh, anyway, they went to go rebuild the temple and, and they did it. Like courageously, they, they finished the temple, but the rest of Jerusalem is still in shambles. They're about to start that when some of the neighboring countries look at them and they're like, we can't do this. Like, we can't have the nation of Israel unify again and be a great people. So they write King Artaxerxes of Persia, who's the known powerhouse in the world. They, they said, look, you can't do this. You can't let them rebuild the city. Because if they do it, they're going to be rebels. They're stingy, awful people. Go ahead and read it. Ezra Fords, the book right before this. Is, I mean, it's, it's wild. But they stopped it. Artaxerxes wrote a letter that said, like, you're not going to rebuild the city anymore. Uh, and so the rebuilding efforts were frustrated. And it left the people vulnerable because there were no walls. 
And some of the people that uh, did not want them to exist as a nation, they would come in and start uh, pillaging and and plundering again. And so Nehemiah hears this. He says, man, this is not good. In fact, it just rips him in pieces. But, man, if we hear all of that, we're tempted to think that Nehemiah was just ripped apart because of the circumstances. His homeland's in shambles. His national people are scattered all over the place. The wall isn't quite right. I mean, he's cupbearer. I mean, nobody wants to be a cupbearer. Like, he hates his job, you know? We're tempted to think that if, if we just change the circumstances, then life would be good. But that's not what has Nehemiah ripped in pieces. Because he, he understands what's really at the root of all of this. Because he knows something about God that a lot of the Jews at that time were completely missing. He knew that the real problem, the real ruins, were not the walls around Jerusalem. It was the relationship between God and his people. You see, they had rejected God 140 years earlier and, and much prior to that too. For hundreds of years, they had basically created their own life plans without factoring God into it whatsoever. And he knew that this was the problem because he's looking back at a covenant that God made with them about a thousand years earlier in Deuteronomy chapter four. You can read this. I'm just gonna read it for you and I think it's gonna be up on the screen as well. This is what Nehemiah had, had known and what he had been reading and how he knew, man, the, the ruins of Jerusalem is really, it's because of this. Deuteronomy chapter four, this is what it says. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I'm teaching you and do them that you may live. This is the law, this commandment that God was giving his people about a thousand years earlier. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your God, um, your father, is giving you. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people who, when they hear all these things, they're gonna say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? Do you understand that, that promise? When we call on you, God, you're going to be near to us. It's relational, incredibly relational from the very beginning. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this laws that I've set before you? Righteous meaning right standing before God and right standing before other people. We're getting it right, right relationships. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God. And this is what Nehemiah is remembering, what he's going back to. Which he made with you and made a a carved image in the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When his people turn to anything for their meaning and their hope and their significance, whether it's a a carved image or whether it's their income, their house, their health, their family. If they're turning to anything other than God to be the rock in their life. God's saying, it's just not going to go well with you. You weren't designed for that. And so he says, um, if, if you do this in the form of anything, by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but you're going to be destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. I don't know if you caught this in Nehemiah's prayer, but he said, look, God, you're faithful to this. You told us that this would happen. You told us a thousand years ago that if we forgot you and did not factor you into our plans, if we didn't align ourselves with you, that you were just gonna scatter us all over the place. And that's what happens. 
The nation of Assyria came in and sacked them in 722 BC and, and scattered them all over the nations. And then when Babylon came in, they took the best and the brightest and scattered them to ba- Babylon. Nehemiah's like, I get it. You were faithful. Man, to your end of the covenant, your end of the bargain, like God, you are patient with us for hundreds and hundreds of years. And we just totally forgot you. And at the end of it, like you said, if we forget you and just, you know, you're going to scatter us all over the place. I get that. So Nehemiah, he knew what the real ruins were. It wasn't that the circumstances around them, the walls and stuff, that wasn't the real issue. The real issue is they weren't right with God. Now, Nehemiah knew the real ruins in his life and in his people's life, but the question for us is, do we understand the real ruins in our life? Man, it's so easy. And like, I had to take a good look at my heart this week. Like, it is so easy to assume that the real ruins in my life are circumstantial. That if I just had, you know, I mean, I love my job. But if I had a better job, you know, a lot of us in this room, like if I just had a better job and better income, life would be better. If my health was better, if my strength and my financial condition, if that was just better, if my family would start loving me and caring for me, if my coworkers started treating me better, if my 401k would just grow, like if my stocks did better, like if, if all of that was better, then my life would just be free of problems. If where I'm living, I mean, you name it, just, we're so tempted to think about our circumstances and to think, man, if just some of these circumstances changed, then my life would be free from problems. And Nehemiah is saying, no, it wouldn't. No, it wouldn't. Because we're not dealing with the root of the issue. There's a restlessness of all of us on the inside of us that as St. Augustine said, I mean, back in 300 you know, AD, he said, man, the, the human heart is restless until it finds rest in God. We're not right with him. And, and for some of us who are tempted to say, like, man, I got no beef with God. Like, God's not on my bad list. I'm not angry with God. I'm not displeased with him. Like, and we don't connect all that often, but like, you know, I'm not, I'm not unhappy with him. I mean, it's tempting to think that like these people, the Israelites just got scattered to all sorts of other places because they were like brutal, vicious, awful, murderous people. They weren't. They just didn't factor God into any one of their plans. They just considered life better without him. And if we're honest, guys, if we're honest, all of us are driven there. All of us are driven there. Here's the reality. God wants to do something in your life in every moment and every minute of every day of your life. When you're at the grocery store, like, He's got some things to do in your life and maybe to speak some, some life and peace and hope into the cashier. But man, if we're, if we're honest, like we just, we grab our food, we check out of the cashier line without even really engaging the person across from the, you know, that little rotary thing, whatever it is. And like we just, like we don't even talk to them. But you have to understand, like God wants to do something special in every one of, every moment of every day. And we just don't factor him into it because like we're just so pigeonholed into what we're doing in the moment. I'm telling you right now, when we don't factor God into our plans, it's as good as murder because we reject God in the exact same way. Now, just to illustrate this, man, like this, this hit me a couple days ago. We were bringing our kids. One of, one of the things we want to do for our kids in the new year is, is uh, get them involved in some lessons. Um, and so we, we brought them over to the YMCA where they're going to be doing dance and dive, you know. And like I got little girls, so it's all about dancing and diving, you know. I have no idea what that's about, but we brought them over to the YMCA. We're going to go dance and dive. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, believe me, like I got to put on some 10 pounds of muscle, man, because like, and maybe like I got to go shooting with Mark or something to regain some of my manhood. Uh, but like we went to go dance and dive. 
anyway, uh, we had some fun with that. And like you knew this past week, anybody just like freezing this past week, totally frigid, cold, cold week. Man, the urgency for us when we're leaving the YMCA is like, how fast can we get in that car? How fast can we get in there? And we're, we're dragging our kids and like, I don't know about you guys, but when you want your kids to go fast, they usually don't go very fast, you know? They're kind of like dragging and, you know, like, you know, you got to like basically hold all of them all at the same time to get in the car. Anyway, we're getting the kids in the car and we're trying to strap them in the, the buckles as fast as we can. And then the kid that we buckled in in the very, very back starts flipping out. We're like, what? what? what what's wrong? And she's just flipping out, like wouldn't tell us, like, please tell us what is wrong. And she goes, my baby. What do you mean your baby? My baby is not buckled. I'm like, it's freezing outside. We're not buckling your baby. You know? So we, we hop in the car and literally like for the whole half of the ride home, like it's like meltdown time, okay? She was so concerned about her little baby not being buckled in the side next to her that her world had crumbled. Oh my goodness. I was looking at that story and thinking like, what's wrong with her? And then I had to take a good hard look at my life and I'm like, okay, I get it. Man, I get messed up sometimes about money. I get messed up sometimes about where the future of my job is going. I get messed up sometimes about some circumstantial things around me and it's no better than weeping over a baby that's not buckled in the side seat next to me. And when she was so wrapped up in the baby, she missed the urgency of that situation. She missed the fact that it was so stupid cold out there that we just needed to get everybody in and back home. She couldn't see her other sisters and her parents in there because she's just so wrapped up in all of that. And I'm telling you, we got to take a good hard look at ourselves here in America. Like, we're not right. We're not right with God. The reality of the condition in America is, is really this. There's a rising faith category called the nuns in which more and more people are, are living life having no affiliation with any faith whatsoever. They're just like, I don't want to have a God or a religion or anything organized like that in my life. I just don't. Um, it's, a, it's a rising category. In fact, in New England, eight of the, out of the top ten post-Christian cities in America are right here in New England. And, and post-Christian basically meaning like they don't want a whole lot to do with God. They're not reading their Bibles. They're not following him. They're just not factoring him into the equation of their life. 56% of the population between Manchester, New Hampshire, and Boston is post-Christian. Recent studies show, and this is about 80,000 people that they're, they're interviewing here. Um, and honestly, I, I, this is just my firm conviction. I really believe the fact that faith is waning in America, and particularly here in New England, is because the church has not done its job. That's my firm conviction. And in fact, a recent study from Barna, who does a ton of studies on churches, has recently revealed uh, that churches in New England struggle with evangelism. If you don't know the word evangelism, basically it's loving your city and telling people about Jesus. They struggle with that. And instead, the, the, what the study basically shows is that we're so consumed with ourselves as churches so consumed with our buildings and our budgets and our programs and our little culture and our comfort that we have not done enough to, to encourage and empower our people to go out into the city and to love people where they're at and to tell them the hope of Jesus. We're navel gazers. For years and years, I knew this. I mean, we'd, we'd preach maybe a clean message inside churches, but man, we'd do nothing to empower our, our people to go out and live among the ordinary, every, everyday life people around us, whom Jesus loves with a passion. And when we don't do our job in loving our city, the church is going to die. And when the church dies, which is the people of God, 
the mission of God suffers. This is what had Nehemiah in knots. It wasn't the city of Jerusalem. It wasn't the, the walls around it. It wasn't the circumstances. It was the fact that the people of God weren't right with God. And because they weren't right with God, the mission of God was suffering. And people all over were not knowing that they had access to God now. They could actually have a relationship with God and get right with him. And not just that, but join him in the great work that he wants to do in this world. Jesus called us a city on a hill that we cannot be hidden. We've got to live out there in the world, letting people know about who he is and his plan to love and care for everyone else around us. The stakes are so much higher than our circumstances. So Nehemiah knew the ruins. The question for us is, do we understand the ruins? Do we understand our own ruins? And do we understand the ruins of our city around us? Or are we too sucked up into our baby doll next to us? Now, if we understand the problem, if we really understand the problem, the next question is like, well, what do we do about it? How do we fix it? So here... This is so cool. You got to understand Nehemiah's first move, okay? Now, all of us, like when we see a problem and we want to, you know, what do we want to do? We want to fix it right away, right? Anybody had some like frozen pipes this week? <laughs> yeah, yeah, a couple of us, yeah. I know someone who had a frozen pipe, not raising his hand today. Uh, like we, we had some frozen pipes as well. Like, yeah, there it is. Uh, Mark Litchfield, that's right, baby. All right, we had some frozen pipes. Like, and when you got a frozen pipe, like you got to do something with it, right? Right away, you got to do something with it. Yeah, so, uh, all right, I'll talk to you later, Jenna. I don't know what you're trying to say. All right, but you got to fix it. When your pipes are frozen, you fix it. When you got a poopy diaper, you got to fix it right away. When your spouse comes to you with problems, you got to fix them right away, right? Right, ladies, right? Like, you fix? No. Awful advice. Don't ever fix your spouse right away. Just listen to them, okay? Bad, bad, okay, don't listen to me. Anyway, but we want to fix it right away. But Nehemiah, this is what he does. His first move is not, man, let's go do something. Let's go run over to Jerusalem right away. No, what does he do? Look at this. Verse four, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. And for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed. We know how long this was because it says in the month of Kislev at the beginning here, and then at the beginning of chapter two, it says now in the month of Nisan, there's a gap of 16 weeks there. For 16 weeks, four months, he's humbling himself, he's fasting He's praying, he's mourning over the brokenness, over the lostness of his city and his own life. He's taken all of this time. Why is he doing this? Nehemiah understood something. In order to get right with God, we've got to get outside of ourselves. We've got to get outside of ourselves. This is what he does. He sits down. It's a posture of humility and submission. When you know there's something right or not right in your life, like we instantly just want to fix it right away. But like, do you slow down and just sit and humble yourself before God? He wept. He became emotionally undone over what God's heart broke over. He mourned. We're horrible at mourning in America. Mourning is essentially this. It's a posture of realizing and experiencing the loss that you're going through in life. Like if you've lost a loved one, like a lot of us are just like, just move on. Mourning is sitting in that and realizing and experiencing, like feeling the full weight of that. He fasted. We're really bad at this because we love our food, okay? Fasting, fasting is essentially going without food to declare our utter dependence on God, to experience the fact that we're so dependent on him for everything. The wild thing about fasting too, if you've ever done it, is it actually increases your focus, you start thinking a little bit clearer, and like and we know this, right? Thanksgiving, how clear are you thinking right after your Thanksgiving meal? 
Like, man, you're like, <laughs> you're like, you're just ready to knock out for about two days, you know? Like, when you go without food, there's a, there's a clarity of mind where when you're going without that, yes, you experience that utter dependence on God, but you're actually seeing better. You're focused more on his plans and his mission in this world. And finally, he prayed. Man, he just turned to God. Our culture says anything but this. Instead of turning toward God and away from our selfish desires, there's a huge message out there right now that says you got to look deep within yourself to find all your answers in life. I don't know if you caught this. It's floating around Facebook a lot right now, but there's a book out there called The Secret. I mentioned it like about a month ago. Um, And The Secret is essentially this. It says you can have whatever you want in life if you just think it, believe it, and receive it enough. You can be happy, healthy, and wealthy. You just got to desire it enough. And if you desire it enough, it is yours. In fact, the universe has to bend to your individual personal desires because that's what the whole universe is meant for. Like you are the king of your, like these, literally I'm taking, I'm taking quotes out of this. You are the masterpiece of your life. The universe must correspond to the nature of your song because you create your own universe as you go along. Now it sounds kind of fun, Right? kind of empowering like oh man I'm the master of my universe they say that it happens through the law of attraction that you attract whatever outcomes happen to you in life and if you just attract good things if you think good things if you feel good things you're going to attract good things to yourself it all breaks apart when bad things happen because like if a loved one dies what they're essentially saying is that was your fault if you have no income that's your fault anyway What Nehemiah does is not turn more inward. What he does is lower himself. He sits in a posture of humility and he looks upward. God, God, what is your heart? Not mine. You're not the masterpiece of your universe. Nehemiah knew that. And so what he does is he he lowers himself and looks to God for guidance, looks to God for help and, and tries to understand who God is and search God. And I don't know about you guys, but like we're just not good at sitting still in America. We love busyness. We love activity. There was a season for, for me and Charity where we're trying to figure out like what to do next. And for a lot of us, like when we prayed for God to like, you know, give us some discernment in life, it usually goes like, like God, uh, can I date so-and-so or not? You know, God, can, should I take this job or should I not take this job? And we give God like an option A and an option B and we just like, God, you know, please give me some answers on this one. Anybody ever been frustrated like God does not answer you in those questions? Yeah, yeah. Like, man, we've been there. Like there, there was a season in my life where I was working in church in, in the seacoast area of New Hampshire and, and uh, we were presented with another job that was paying way more than what we were having in New Hampshire. Uh, better circumstances, better opportunity, better future. And it was in New York and Charity and I are trying to think like, which one should we take? Uh, you know, we're, we're living month to month here. There's not a whole lot of room for opportunity at this place. It seems like a clear answer. Go to New York. Um, but we're like, God, option A, option B. Which one is it? Which one is it? And like, we just wrestled with that one and totally no peace at all. Just completely unrest. What we didn't understand is that God had an option C and we weren't seeking him at all on it. We're just like, God, you know, which one? Door A or door B? And God's like, no, I got a C. You just got to know me. <laughs> like, actually desire what I desire. And so he took us on this journey when he closed both doors there of really discovering who he is. Man, and like, here's my challenge for all of us. Like, are you, are you reading God's word? Are you in it enough to understand God's heartbeat? Because God's not worked up about your job situation as much as you are. What he's he's worked up about is you participating in his plans and what he wants to do to to resurrect life, 
He wants to remake this world, every part of it. And he doesn't want to just change your circumstances. He wants to change you from the inside out so that you can be a difference maker in the whole world. It's way bigger than that. He doesn't care about your circumstances as much as he cares about his mission. And our heart needs to break over what breaks God's heart first. This is why Jesus, when he was weeping over Jerusalem at one point, he wasn't weeping because he didn't have money, he didn't have position, he didn't have power. He was weeping because Jerusalem wasn't right with God. And he said, oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, this is the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered you like children as, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. And because of that, you were left desolate. Man, we just run away from God and not include him on any one of our plans. And instead, man, we're just so bent to just try to fix some of our circumstances around us. But man, just fixing the circumstances around us, it's kind of like those people who sign up for a gym membership at the beginning of the year and like put on those spandex and everything and they just like go sit on a treadmill with some potato chips in their hand. Like they're not dealing with the root of the issue, you know? It doesn't matter how much spandex you put on, it's not hiding that muffin top. You know what I'm saying? I'm just, I'm just saying, okay? Like if we're fixing the circumstances only... We're not dealing with the root of the issue. We've got to go deep in the, in the root of the issue. And to understand God's will and what he wants for your life, you've got to know God and his character and his heart. And so in every one of the groups that we're going to be launching in January 21st, we're going to be teaching people how to know God's word, how to read it, how to understand his will and his plan. Because I promise you this, I promise you this, his plans for your life may not change your circumstances to make you happier, healthier, and and wealthier in life, but you're going to have more joy and more purpose and more meaning and more significance richer in your life when you join God and his ways than you ever did apart. God wants to make your life sing and he wants to remake this world and he wants to use you in that. So we don't have a lot of time, but let me do this. The last thing we have to understand here is how Nehemiah starts aligning his heart with God's heart. This is so powerful. Look at his prayer. This is how he, he, he orders his prayer. And like, we just have to understand this. For those of us who've been walking with God and like we, we have a relationship with God, what I want you to do is I want you to examine your prayer life. What do your normal prayers look like? This is how it looked for him. First, it begins with adoration. He worships God for who God is, not what God is gonna give him. He says, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and his commandments. Man, do your prayers start out that way? Or are they like, hey, God, just get me through this meeting today? You know, like my coworker's driving me nuts. Can you just like, you know, could you stop that, please? Does it begin with worship? Nehemiah, his prayer begins with worship, not once. Second, it progresses into confession. Look, he wasn't even the one that originally walked away from God that, that caused the people of God to scatter all over the place, but he owns it. He owns it. He says, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. Man, we got to own the fact that we have not included God in our plans. Just own it. And when you get, I mean, when you're honest with yourself on that one, you're going to find some healing in there. Every time you're honest with your spouse, you know that it, it makes you closer, not farther apart. We got to get honest. So it goes from worship to confession. Are you confessing how you're, you've got this internal rebellion against God? We all do. We all do, myself included. It goes from that to appealing to God's covenant. Look, God, this is what you want to do. This is what you want to accomplish in this world. I'm appealing. Remember, he says, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you. But if you return and obey my commands, then even your exiled people who are farthest, I'm going to bring them back for my sake. He said, God, 
You are faithful to that covenant by scattering us. Be faithful in bringing us back. Be faithful in bringing us back. This is what you want and what you desire. The crazy thing is that Jesus said, man, ask anything you want in my name and I'm going to give it to you. But only if you ask it in my name. We got to discover God's heart first, guys. And when we know God's heart, he's given us access to ask boldly for the things that he desires. And God wants nothing less than redeeming this entire world. So man, if we're going to ask him, let's ask big. Let's ask for nothing less than something huge, okay? And then finally, he asks for success, but he doesn't ask for success for his own personal life. He asks for success in the God-sized success. So man, we got to get God's heart. Now here's the wild thing. What, what if? What if we as a church started asking these kind of things? What if we started searching God's heart, live and desiring the things that God desired, and started praying big for the things that God wants to do in this world? What if? Well, this is what happened to a church in, uh, uh, in Alabama called Lincoln Village Church. I, t- I told you before, I think the church has done a pretty miserable job at reaching their cities and loving them. Uh, this, this church came to a breaking point for them, for them and they're, they're like, we're not doing this. We're not loving our city. We've been so focused on our budgets, you know, all the people that are coming and just maintaining our buildings. We need to start praying God's prayer. And so this church, Lincoln Village Church, this is what they started doing. They started praying for a local elementary school that was around the corner, and it was one of the worst elementary schools in the nation. The education, the, uh, uh, the economic level, I mean, so many of it registered it as one of the, the poorest and worst elementary schools in the nation. They started praying with this elementary school, and then they started partnering with the elementary school. First thing that they did is they started praying, and then getting God's heart for this elementary school is boosting their library and education equipment. They started providing things for the school that the school didn't have. Second, they started partnering with the kids by providing mentors for this school. People in the church came in to help mentor these kids and walk alongside them and develop relationships with them and their, and their parents. And then the church discovered, wait a second, we've got medical people in our church, like nurses and doctors. We can actually provide medical help for these kids that otherwise couldn't afford this kind of stuff. And so the medical parishioners started getting involved in this local school and providing better health. The church encouraged parents to be part of the PTA and it changed. The PTA went from six parents to over a hundred parents involved in that school. Massive turnaround. And because of this, just these improvements, the school got one of the six Panasonic turnaround school awards, making it one of the most improved schools in the entire nation. The business parishioners, some of the people inside the church that were business-minded, they started a corporation that started buying some of the homes around them that were were owned by slumlords. They started buying them and repurposing them, you know, making them much better on the inside and then making them affordable to people who couldn't afford them. The lawyers got involved so that people in the neighborhood could actually get legal help in a way that they could afford it. Do you see what happens when we start desiring the things that God desires? We start searching his heart for what he wants. Man, our jobs and our our living situations and some of the things that are driving us nuts right now, it starts falling away and melting. And we start getting a bigger picture of what God wants to do in this world. It's a dangerous thing when we start praying for God to change our hearts to align with his. But I'm telling you right now, if you're making New Year's resolutions here in 2018, don't even begin making them without searching and combing the heart of God. Because he has bigger plans than you can even imagine. And I'm telling you right now that if we as a church, if we start aligning ourselves with his vision and not our own, 
2018 is going to be an incredible year. It's going to pull us outside of our comfort zone, but if we engage in that rescue mission and join God, it's going to be wild. I'm ready for that. I don't know about you guys, but I'm excited about this year. And I think as we, as a whole church, seek God and join him, it's going to get crazy. (laughs) All right? Man, let's pray. God, my heart is that as we begin 2018, that you would resurrect in us a vision of who you are. Bring us back to a place, God, where we're discovering you. We're recovering the heart of Jesus and the lifestyle that he lived that was so much more than himself and his circumstances. God, and I pray that as we desire the things that you desire, that we would realize that you did something for us that we could not do for ourselves. That it's not about us just mustering it up and willing life to be better, but responding to a God who entered into our life and into our brokenness, into our mess in the person of Jesus Christ and nailed all of that, the weight of it all on the cross as you died to bring us back to you. Let us look at what you've done to us, God, your faithfulness, God, and let it move us at the deepest level of who we are to respond out of gratitude for for you and faithfulness to love our city the way that you loved us. Let that be true of the well in 2018. I pray in Christ's name, amen. So man, this is how we respond every single week. Every week we do something called